This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There are two f- great fears that all human beings have. One is is that I will be abandoned, so life will leave me behind, I'll be left on my own or I'll be left out. And the other one is fear of overwhelm, that I'm not good enough and able enough for what is thrown at me. So we've all got those fears in operation and I don't know anyone who doesn't and it's like how do you get fear to work with you and how do you see it as a way of you know showing you the way. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton and I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. A quick reminder about the chance to win a free two-hour career coaching session with us. We've extended the closing date by a few days to this Friday, 6th of July, 2018. That's right, Claire. So hurry and put your name forward, particularly if you've got some burning questions or a career issue you'd like to explore. Head over to our website, don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win for info on how to enter. And don't forget, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now for this week's episode. Claire and I are genuinely excited to share this conversation with Lindley Edwards today. Lindley started her career working for one of Australia's most renowned investment banks, Macquarie Bank, and then found a love of Asia when she took on a VP role with Citibank. Today, Lindley runs a corporate advisory business called AFG Venture Group. It specializes in cross-border investments and transactions, particularly between Australia and Asia. She's also chairperson for two startups and a non-executive director of a think tank called Asia Link. Lindley is definitely not your normal investment banker. We don't know anyone else who uses philosophy, poetry, biology, and cross-cultural intelligence as their foundation for thinking about business and disruption. In this episode, you'll hear Lindley share her wisdom about how she thinks or doesn't think about planning her career, why making mistakes can be so important, how to negotiate your next pay rise, and how Lindley learnt to push through fear. Both Greta and I were taking notes when we listened to this episode earlier. There are so many useful nuggets here. Enjoy. Lindley, thanks so much for making the time in your truly jet-setting schedule, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. Good to be here. You've had an incredible career today and wear a number of hats. So when you meet someone for the first time, how do you describe what you do? Usually I start with what my day-to-day job is, which is as a corporate advisor in AFG Venture Group and 
at AFG Venture Group, I do a lot of cross-border transactions. So doing merger, acquisition, divestment, fundraising, licensing deals for a variety of companies, but generally very Asia-focused, Australia-Asia-focused. If we think just big picture firstly about your career, you know, you're an accountant, you've worked for one of Australia's top investment banks, Macquarie Bank, you've been a VP at Citibank before starting your own company, AFG Venture Group. How have you thought about at those different points in time about what's next in your career? Well, I think that thinking about what's next is you don't really know what's next, but you just know that what you're doing is coming to an end. I like a word that comes out of biology. It's called liminality. And liminality is when something is ending or something is ch- is changing form. So liminality is if where the sand meets the sea. Landform meets the say. When something is coming to an end, we're not what we were, but we're not yet what we're becoming. So I'm really interested in being aware that at those points in time, I don't really know what's coming to me, but I just do what I can see is in front of me. So I don't have this big grand vision of life. I've never had a big grand vision of life, but I've had an idea that something else might be possible. So I'm not afraid to jump into it. And if I look at the leaving Macquarie was a hard decision because I loved working there, but I knew that I was doing the same thing over and over again. And so I needed to actually do something different. So then I went to Citibank and what I didn't realize when I went to Citibank that I would be introduced to the world of Asia and my whole perspective on the world changed because I'd never dealt with anyone or any anything that involved Asia. And I realized that I needed to understand what cross-cultural intelligence was. And that then opened the world for me, even though I didn't stay at Citibank, I then went on to create AFG Venture Group with some other people. So you don't know what's coming towards you. You just know that you have to move or change or pivot. And you do, there's a great line in a poem, like, Take the first step, the step that's closest to you. That's all you can do because you can't see where you're going. That's beautiful, isn't it? And so true. It's like just taking one small step on the journey. If we go all the way back in the journey, back to your childhood, how do you think your childhood has impacted where you are today and who you are? Well, there's a couple of key elements in my childhood. One is, is I was brought up for the first few years of being a child in Adelaide and anyone who's comes from Adelaide and a couple of my friends call, still call me Adelaide because I <laughs> think manners are really important. But in Adelaide, it's what will people think? There's a lot of that. And I would look at things and think that's not really right, but no one would say anything because they were frightened of or in social environment that you know, what would people think would stop you doing things, which for me didn't seem a very good reason. And then when I was 11, I moved to a country town of 500 people and I learned what it's like to be in a place that's fantastic, but the ideas were too small for me. And how did you fit in something that you couldn't fit in? But the great thing about living in a country town is you also really start to understand the economy because in a small country town, if one or two people do really well, the whole town starts to do well. If one or two people start doing badly, the whole town does badly. And you can see the impact of positive or negative economic inputs into small communities. So that's where I think my interest in economics and financial matters came from. But, you know, it's also you learn certain things living in a country town of what it is to be in a community. And there's some really positive things. So when you eventually go to a city you have to do a mental adjustment of 
actually it's really different here. Everything gets washed into this great pool, so you can't really see the impact of actions like you can in a small country town. That's so true. I, I've never thought of it like that. I also grew up in a really small little country town, but in the UK. And you're so right. You know, it's just such a a little microcosm, isn't it? Lindley, I don't know if this is the right word, but I get the sense you may have been a little bit of a rebel in your country town. Is that right? Yes, I was. But mainly about things that I thought were ridiculous or I couldn't see the reason for something. And for me, it's this ability to question why and to be curious about why, not just accept why something is so. You can see your curiosity come out in many different ways. One of them being this sort of real love of things like philosophy and poetry. You've already given us a poem. And where has that come from and how does that influence you in the serious world of business? Well, the reason I like philosophy and poetry is because it's been enduring and it's endured over all of the time of the human condition. So when you're searching for what could be true or what you could stand on when things are unsure and disrupting and changing, it's really useful to stand on ground that other people have stood on and understood how they made sense of the world. There is like aspects of mythology philosophy, poetry, the arts, bring us to our ground of being. So, of course, we must have that in our life if we're going to then reach for some big ideas so you can become grounded. And I really like to know whose ideas I'm standing on top of. It's a little bit like a genealogy. Yeah. Who has gone down this track before and why have they thought that and why have they come to that conclusion? And if I'm going to disrupt it, what am I really disrupting or adding to? What's the body of knowledge? I'd love to turn to, we both know that you've got a very strong moral compass, yet I think you've mentioned once in an article that you work in an industry that's had a series of moral failures. How do you navigate your way through this and stay true to your values? Morality is not a fixed state of being and morality is a point of view and we all at times our morality is challenged and what I say that is when do we act in alignment with our values? At times we are tested on our values and times we don't. So I don't ever want to get on a high ground of what someone else is doing because I have my own failings myself. But morality is is what's decent and what's fair and what's reasonable. And, you know, one of the things in Macquarie in the early days, you know, the position was whatever you were doing, if everything that you were doing was on the front page of the paper, could you live with that? And that's a good you know, that, that is a really good one to sort of live by. But I think that sometimes we find ourselves in positions we didn't really know how we got there. Mm. And it happens by a series of small steps, not big ones. And I think that a lot of people in my industry are saying, how did we get to here? We got to here in this industry from a series of moral failures. It's particularly when you have to go against the group and particularly where someone has to say, I don't think this is right. So that's a collective responsibility. So it's blood in the water around banks. It's easy to get on that bandwagon. In Australia, for sure. (laughs) But there's a collective failure and we are all have to say, how did I contribute to some of these failings? And I don't want to ever be on a moral high horse about anything. 
because, you know, who knows what happens down the track. But there are things that have happened. As you know, I'm the chair of Zinja, which we are going for our banking license. And I said to the CEO, if we get to ever go before a Royal Commission or we get to actually go to Senate inquiry or whatever, let's turn up, let's not send the staff and throw them under the bus. So that's the agreement we have. Hopefully we don't get to that position, but it's actually being able to turn up when it's tough and to face what's gone wrong. Yeah. You talked about Zinja then, and clearly we've mentioned you wear many hats. So as well as, you know, your role with AFG Ventures, you're also chair of this brand new, exciting, digital-only bank, Zinja. Well, we're not a bank yet because we can't That's use the true. word bank. Yes. <laughs> we're <an> aspiring. <laughs> and uh, Yumano, a data insights company, to name just two yeah. of the ventures we know you're involved with and you're on the board of AsiaLink. How do you juggle everything? How do you think about that? Well, it comes back to what I talked about, about thematic. So what are the things that I'm passionate and interested in? Financial services, and particularly where financial services can be deployed or given to people in a way that actually enhances their financial position and nudges them to better financial outcomes. So that is one thematic. Another thematic is data and the use of data in digitization. And then the other big thematic for me is Asia. So everything I do sort of has those components in it. And that's what I do for a living as well. So it looks like I've got all these other interests, but I have, but they're all aligned into a sort of a coherence for me. Have there been any sort of major mistakes you can think of that you've, you know, really learned from that perhaps our listeners could learn from as well? I think my life is a whole lot of mistakes. (laughs) And one of the jokes that I make is I've learned a lot what not to do as much as what to do. And there's a thing when sometimes when you start something and you're doing the right thing, you don't know you're doing the right thing because it's unconscious competence. So when you make a few mistakes, you actually soon learn what you should and shouldn't do. And there is a conscious competence that comes out of the mistake. And one of the most empowering things I ever uh, around mistakes was Anita Roddick when she was alive, she came to Sydney and she said, there's no such thing as a mistake It's only if you keep doing it. So I adopted that as a mantra early on. And that's Anita Roddick, the amazing founder no longer with us of The Body Shop. Yeah, That was her presentation and and it was something that stuck with me and I thought, okay, I will make a lot of mistakes and I continue to make a lot of mistakes, continue to have a lot of challenges, but it's okay. It's only not if I keep doing it over and over and over again. So that means your ability to deal with stuff is completely different. And even, you know, if something goes wrong in any of the organisations I'm involved in, what I like to ask the question of is if in a year's time we said this was the best thing that ever happened to us, what would need to be true? And what is the accountability that we all need to take out of what happened? But what is it that this is teaching us? And it sort of reframes everything because you've actually owned the mistake And then when you've owned the mistake, then you can work out, well, where is it going to lead you? I think it's so important to have the license to be able to make mistakes. Yeah. Because that is the way that you learn. Yeah. And it's the basis of all innovation. If you can't make a mistake, and I was mentoring someone yesterday and they were really concerned of whether they would make a mistake. And I said, just try it. And if it doesn't work, just adjust. Yeah. 
There's a couple of things in life that are really, really big. If you've got a, some form of life-threatening disease or you're going through a really big breakup or something's happening with your children, they're big things. The rest of it is actually, a lot of it is not that consequential. It feels like it is, mm. but you can move and pivot. You don't have to keep beating yourself up about it and you don't have to be perfect or right. You just give it a go and see what happens. Yeah, no, so true. I'm really curious because you've gained a lot of wisdom on the way, but what are the things that still scare you, if anything? Okay, so all of us have fear. I don't know anyone who doesn't have fear. And and if it's not what you're trying to do, it doesn't have an element of fear, it often means it's not big enough for you. And when I say that is that the fear makes you feel alive but the fear is in the ancients, this is why I like the ancients, fear comes out of the same root of language as fear, like wayfair. Fear is your way. It's like doing the path for you. And if you look at there are two f- great fears that all human beings have. One is, is that I will be abandoned. So life will leave me behind. I'll be left on my own or I'll be left out. And the other one is fear of overwhelm, that I'm not good enough and able enough for what is thrown at me. So we've all got those fears in operation, and I don't know anyone who doesn't, and it's like how do you get fear to work with you and how do you see it as a way of, you know, showing you the way? Mm. So, yes, it's frightening to go and say we've taken other people's money and we now need to build a bank you know, and we need to go through a licensing. That's pretty frightening if you sit there. And as I said to one of the big investors, I don't ever want to walk down the street and have to cross the road because you're <laughs> coming to meet me. <laughs> That's the fear. <laughs> it is a big fear. And it's also, this is people's hard-earned money. So, of course, it should keep us up at night. And of course, we should worry about that. But what are the practical things that you actually do to help have fear help you and help fear show you the way? Like what is an example? Okay, so how you do that is you acknowledge your fear. So you're not trying to hand it over and make out it, you know, it doesn't exist. But also to, to say, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I just know that I can do this bit. So I'll do that little bit. And you keep walking into it. There is a favourite book that I really like and it's called What's in the Way is the Way. And if you walk into stuff, it normally works. And I'll give you an example. The first time I ever did a corporate transaction on my own, unfortunately, I was up against one of the most experienced corporate advisors, investment bankers in Australia. And I just looked at it and thought, I'm going to last five minutes before he realizes how incompetent and inexperienced, uh, inexperienced I am. Because I'd already said to the client, you know, I'm not very experienced. And the client said, I don't mind. Like, you know, I think we could do this. So I went to him and I said to him, look, this is the first corporate transaction I've ever done on my own. And so through the course of the transaction, he would say to me, Lindley, if I were you, I'd look at X. Or you might want to think about why. And also it got really hard because I was like raising some capital for him. And I nearly had all the money, but I just didn't have all of it. So then he took me out for a coffee and gave me a little pep talk and said, you know, just keep going, you'll get there. (laughs) But that's my example of my fear was there, but I used the fear to help move into it. And I also didn't say that I was, you know, a fantastic corporate advisor because I wasn't. So it sounds like you were actually quite vulnerable. Yeah, incredibly vulnerable. It worked for you. 
Well, it's a little bit like if you play a game of tennis, you're really fantastic and the other person's hopeless. Are you going to play the game like you're playing a really good play? No, you're going to encourage that person. So that is how it works in life. You know, if you're really honest and say to people you need help, or I don't know, but this is why I think X or Y, and it opens up stuff. Have you ever had a, an experience where you've been vulnerable, you've said you don't know something, and then it sort of backfired on you? No, because I just say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Or I don't know, and this is, but this is what I think, and this is why I think it. And you can challenge, like, if people have got other ideas. So then you're opening it up to the group. Yeah, right. And I think Claire was meaning also, like, any time someone has – Take, tried to take advantage of you in that scenario, for example, showing that you didn't have much experience. Has anyone then actually tried to take advantage of that? No, most people won't. I think that is right, but it's our fear, isn't it, that they will. Yeah. And so therefore we don't show our vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I also think that if I don't understand something, I don't. I've sat on boards in the past and I've asked questions and I said, I don't understand this. And then I find out later there are people that also don't understand it, but no one said anything. So if I don't understand it, I don't. I'm sorry if I'm, you know, got limited intelligence, but if I don't understand it, I don't. Yeah. And that is so healthy in my mind. That's what we need to move to because if people don't ask questions yeah. and everybody around the table doesn't know, but nobody's fessing up, then we've got yeah. problems. It's liberating too, isn't it? It is liberating. Because well, you can go and find out and other people can help you. I really learned that in Macquarie Bank because we were doing stuff that no one else had done. And so you had to try and work out the answers. And how you worked out the answers, like come to some conclusion when you have to say, well, this is why I've come to that conclusion, but I still can't say 100% that this is the right way. And you deal with it. And it's this way of dealing with uncertainty. So then you grow into it and then you become experienced Mm. and then you become a subject matter expert, but you start with knowing nothing. I'd love to turn now to you know being a woman in business Mm -hmm. and in pretty Mm male-dominated field too. I imagine that in most of the roles you've had, you've very often been one of the only, if not the only woman at the table. What's been challenging, if anything, about that? I haven't really found that to be a challenge and I know that sounds strange. It's been more around because I've worked in a lot of businesses that are either needed to change and do transformation or they were emerging and growing. The real issue is how you make that happen, not really what the sex of someone is around the table. So I've been lucky in that regard and also lucky that I've just been able to get all sorts of opportunities and do things. But, you know, I do get concerned about the lack of divergent thinking, the lack of divergent people around tables. I like to champion that we will have, you know, we have more women. I like to champion that we have people from different cultural backgrounds, different ages, different experiences. But I've been lucky enough to not have a lot of, or feel that I've been discriminated against. I think I've heard you or read about you saying how important it is for women to use the right language. And what specifically were you referring to then? Was that the sort of not to sound apologetic or weak? Yeah, tell us more. Yeah, so so part of it is, is you don't have to be apologetic. You can just state this is my position, this is what I feel, and get confidence in yourself. And confidence in yourself means that you actually think, well, I'm worthy to be around this table or I'm worthy to be in this position. 
So I will make a point of view and I will make sure that I do talk about things. I won't take all the airspace, but if there are, is something that needs to be raised, I will raise it. And I think as women, we need to do that and not sit back and let make sure our ideas are heard. What's your advice over for, for women from the point of view of getting confidence in yourself? Because I think sometimes there are situations that can be intimidating. I know a lot of women tend to discount their abilities. The research shows that time and again. So what's the kind of practical advice to feel that confidence to be able to speak out? A lot of it's fear, all right? So if you're actually in the fear and you feel it, and I remember when I used to first start, you know, when I first started to say things, my heart would be racing, but I would say it anyway. So to push through those uncomfortable barriers. And the other thing that to learn how to breathe, because if you breathe well and breathe deeply from your gut, it's really hard to be, to stay stressed. You've got to learn and say, well, it's uncomfortable for me, but I'll keep going. When I was really young, when I first started working, someone would talk to me, I turned bright red. So I've come a long way <laughs> from that. And a lot of it is to just keep pushing out what you're comfortable with and be okay with it. And if I get it wrong, I get it wrong. You know, no big deal. I think also on the language, which is how we got to this point with the discussion, that comes into play a lot for negotiation. And I imagine in your roles, you do a lot of negotiating. It's something a lot of women seek advice and help for, particularly things like negotiating a pay rise, which is so much more about them than negotiating mm. a deal, which is at least not about you, the person. What are your tips for particularly that more personal type of negotiation? Well, for any negotiation, it's good to write out for yourself, like just do a mind map of your key points and go in with your key points written out so they can at least look down on your cheat sheet and use your key points. So that way you don't have to remember it and you've got some form of coherent way of getting your message over. But uh, it's really about value and it's actually being able to express, if you want to pay rise, express your value in terms that the business can understand. And sometimes you've got to give data and say, well, you know, this is what I contributed to the business. This is what I was doing. This is my key clients. You've got to be able to do that thing. So you sit back and say, well, what value did I contribute and write it down and then present it? Yeah. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It, yeah. it sounds like a simple thing, but I think it does take, it takes, you have to push through the discomfort again. Yeah. You know, you've got the tools, but then you've got to push through that discomfort to be actually able to do it and believe in yourself. Well, I actually will tell you a story, which is, I think, quite funny because I actually had to start selling at Macquarie Bank because, you know, basically we had a startup bank. And so I had a desk and a phone and no clients. And so then they tried to put us on some selling courses. And I had always thought that I would, you know, I'd come out of profession I wasn't a salesperson but I realized I had to sell so it was so terrible that I had to what I used to do is get to work early do my sales calls you know, like between eight and nine before anyone came to work and then I could go and have a coffee and a couple of people afterwards told me they felt so sorry for me <laughs> who were the receiving end they agreed to meet me <laughs> and, and they also thought well you know I had a you know, have a lot of front 
you did a good pitch. Of course, I'll help you and you know, meet with you. But it was hilarious that a lot of them felt sorry for me. So that's why they met with me. And so I, because I couldn't do the calls in front of anyone else because it would have made it even worse. And why did they feel sorry for you? Was there something? Because it was so terrible. <laughs> <the> sales. <laughs> like I didn't have any natural rhythm. How I held it together, I'd say, I can't go and get a proper coffee until I've done these many sales calls. <laughs> And so then it got to the stage by the end, I was like one of the top, you know, salespeople in the organization because I'd actually worked through being terrible. And also this is where when you don't know how to do something like that, listening to people who do know how to do it is a really good way and then adapting it to suit you because if you notice anyone who's really good at something, they've adapted it to be very natural with themselves. Yeah. So it's authentic to themselves. It's authentic to yeah. yourself. So you've got to be authentic to you. Yeah, yeah. And and you can easily translate that back into negotiating for yeah. your salary. Yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. You, you, you've got to start. And what it should happen is each time you look back on something, you go, God, I was really green there. Or like, you feel sorry for your younger self doing stuff and think, wow. And that's why it then gives you a lot more compassion for younger people when you see them struggling or not doing something with ease. You can remember what you, it was like for you. A question on innovation before we kind of wrap up. As chair of a couple of very young ventures, what do you look for in terms of attributes and characteristics of the person who's running the venture? What are you looking for with those well, people? Well, I think I'm really looking for the person's thinking, the person's strategy, whether the person can pivot or change and whether the person has a passion for it. So there's a thing around you need lots of passion, but you also need to be able to pivot or change if, if you need to because if, if an idea or the way that it's rolling out isn't working, you have to change. You can't hang on to it. And you know, yeah. Peter Drucker has a really old article and it was pitfalls of being an entrepreneur. And one of the pitfalls of being an entrepreneur is you're contrarian. But then when the market tells you something, you don't take any notice. And in that, he uses the dental anesthetic that's still used today. And the person who designed that actually designed it for day surgery for doctors and all these dentists wanted to buy it and he said, no, I didn't design it for you, so you can't have it. And then he went, go around a business and then the company that bought it sold it to dentists and it's still used by dentists today. So do you see where this ability to hold something passionately but still be able to pivot when the market gives you intelligence because I have a saying, the market's never wrong even when it is. You know, So you've got to be able to adapt and you've also got to attract other people. No one can do anything of real note on your own. You need teams of people. What would your advice to your 30-year-old self be today if you could give yourself um, advice? I'd be really hard because I would just say don't worry about it. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just try stuff and, and not be afraid to keep trying things. And what's next for you? I don't know is the, is the answer. I do not have some big plan. I have some things that I really like doing and they will be in that, you know, from personal life and also from I would like to go back to doing some teaching, but but I don't know. All I know is that my life is a series of, of small steps and I say yes to things and then see what happens. So I don't have any big blueprint. So stay tuned because I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, what a refreshing approach to take. With that, we want to really thank you so much, Lindley. It's such a interesting and mind-stretching conversation that we've had today. So thank you. And we're going to be watching these next steps that you take with huge amounts of curiosity. Yeah, so will I. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the whole thing is, I think it was Joseph Campbell said, if you know what your plan is and you know what your life is, it's not your life. And so we don't know, you know, and even in the Holy Grail, you know, when the knights go off to look for the Grail, they all enter the places in the woods where they don't know. You don't know. Well, with that, we're going to go to a place that we don't know (laughs) and say thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Before you go, a quick note to let you know that following our launch phase, we'll now release a new episode every second week usually on Wednesdays. Plus, don't forget our competition to win a free two-hour coaching session. Head along to our website for information on how to enter at don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win. But hurry, we'll be drawing the winner on Friday the 6th of July. For those of you who've left us a review, thank you so much. And don't forget to enter our competition. For now, see you back here in two weeks. And... Here's to being a little bit more unstoppable each and every day. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.